Let's pick up right where we left off last time, Dylan. Who named California, California? When did the new and the old worlds meet? And uh, how did this word get placed in North America? That is a fantastic story in itself, Zach. But to get there, we'll have to discuss another story. The Spanish invasion and conquest of Mexico. Whoa, big topic. And I don't think there's going to be a, a fair way to give a short account of these amazing events. It's an incredible story of cruelty, bravery, avarice, and tragedy. But we're going to try. To get the word California from Spain to the west coast of North America, we need to follow the career of a man who's become one of history's great villains, Hernán Cortés. Cortés, yeah. Uh, he, he's like the leader of the conquistadors in Mexico. The bad guy. Uh, he murdered and, and, and enslaved people, right? Yeah, but so did Columbus, who has a national holiday. But the image of Cortez as a historical bad guy has loomed larger in our collective imagination than Columbus. Why is that? Uh, wh why does Cortez, you know, what did he do to earn such infamy? I think it's largely to do with what you just said. Cortez was the leader of the conquistadors in Mexico. I'm not a big fan of what's called the great man theory of history. The idea that history is best understood as the result of the actions of powerful individuals, your Washingtons and Napoleons. I think that even if Hernán Cortés had never been born, Europeans would have eventually come into contact and conflict with the people of North America. But Cortés was the individual who was at the right place and time to make that first contact. Yeah, and, and nothing Cortés accomplished could have been possible without, you know, thousands of other factors. And so we won't be using Cortez's own version of the events. Among others, we'll be following an account of the conquest as recorded by Bernal Diaz del Castillo, who we heard from in our previous installment. Alright, more of this guy, Bernal Diaz. Uh, he was with Cortez when the Spanish first arrived in Mexico City. He said the conquistadors were so blown away by what they saw that they weren't sure if they were hallucinating or not. Bernal Diaz is an interesting source. According to his own account, Diaz wrote to make sure that, among the histories of the captains and governors and priests, that the terrifying and amazing experiences of the soldiers on the ground would be remembered. But Diaz is ultimately riding with his own biases. We know, you know, he's cool with invading a foreign country and murdering and slaving people. It's, you know, he's a conquistador. Uh, and, you know, he's riding... From what exactly? Uh, some write, you know, writings he had done, or from memory? Or... No, essentially, Diaz does admit the possibility of a mental lapse himself, and he asks for our indulgence if... If I should make any misstatement for at the time when all of these things were going on, I was thinking of anything but writing a book, but rather how best to fulfill my duty as a soldier and to act up to the commands of our General Cortez. Okay, so let's let's put this in a 
timeline here. Let's, let's organize what is happening historically. Please, Dylan, paint me a picture. Let's begin in 1519. By this date, Spain had been busy establishing a base in what has been named the West Indies. On the island of Hispaniola, in the settlement of Santo Domingo, Spanish colonists had already founded the site of the first university, cathedral, castle, and monastery in the Americas. Would-be Spanish conquerors had already crossed the Isthmus of Panama and had sent expeditions to explore the coasts of Colombia and the Yucatan. So, Central America conquered. Well, at least visited. So, then lightly explored, at least. Uh, and and uh, obviously, this has been a very <clears throat> a humanitarian and a peaceful exploration, right? Uh, that's what the conquistadors are all about. It would have been horrific to witness. War crimes. Mass executions and sexual violence. But by the 1510s, Word of the atrocities inflicted on the Taino people of the Caribbean had arrived in Spain. So laws were written which, theoretically, would protect indigenous peoples. But other laws, like the requirement of 1513, also attempted to justify the seizing of indigenous land and labor. Ah, sweet bureaucracy and no die. I mean, the state, of course, trying to control people with words. But obviously some contradictory ideas at work here. How can the oppressors hope to exploit and protect the rights of people at the same time? Well, bizarre, contradictory laws are exploited by powerful individuals to this day. True, but at the end of the day, it's all just amounting to arbitrary arguments. All made so Europeans could pretend to trick themselves into thinking that, you know, murder is justifiable as long as you're not killing Christians. So in 1519, the island of Cuba has an abundance of Spanish men hungry for violent employment and a barely explored frontier just over the horizon. And when I say Spanish men here, I don't literally mean that. Spanish would be something of a catch-all term. These men were Castilians, Basque, Portuguese, they were of African descent, and others. They were men allied with the Spanish cause. Enter into this mix is Hernán Cortés, a 34-year-old colonist and local administrator educated in Spain as a lawyer. He was selected by Governor Velázquez of Cuba to lead an expedition to explore the lands to the west and make commercial contacts if possible. Cortés had participated in the occupation of Cuba and had spent eight years on the island as a colonist and administrator, living in rough huts and the first stone structures on the island. Wow, that's, that's an intense lifestyle. Uh, first wave colonists and, and it's his job, his duty is part of the, you know, colonial system. And, and and this mission, it doesn't sound so bad. Just sail along the coast, do a little trading with the locals, collect some intel. Cortez and Governor Velasquez had had a long working relationship in Cuba. Cortez was even married to Velasquez's sister-in-law, Carolina Juarez. But days before Cortez was to set sail, something happened between these two men, and Velasquez revoked Cortez's charter his license to explore. What? Uh, why? Well, Velasquez may have been tipped that Cortez planned to do more than make commercial contacts. Maybe it was something else, maybe something personal. Whatever it was, Cortez ignored the governor's order and sailed from Cuba without any official consent. Given that Cortez's actions eventually went far beyond what the charter asked for, it seems that the governor was right to be suspicious of his underling. Wow, Cortez is an arrogant turd. I mean, with, with such chutzpah, to not just bite the hand that feeds, but also to take a finger. 
Cortez's now illegal mercenary army made to the port of Santo Domingo and collected more men and horses. All accounted for, Cortez's band of rebels included 11 ships carrying over 500 soldiers, hundreds of slaves, servants, and craftspeople, six cannons, and just 16 horses. Amazing. It, it seems like Governor Velasquez's hunch was totally right. And, and cannons and horses, that, that can't be cheap. Who's fronting all the money? Well, the horses would have been very expensive. Velasquez would have founded some of the expedition himself, but Cortez paid for the rest. He actually forced himself deeply into debt to finance the project. When Governor Velasquez revoked the charter, he pulled the rug out from under Cortez. If Cortez sailed, he's a mutineer. But if he didn't, he's bankrupt. Finished. Damned if you do, damned if he doesn't. I get his ultimatum. And um, I'm sure, you know, he was pretty familiar with what he was getting himself into. So where does this charterless army invade first? The first stop on the North American mainland is the eastern coast of the Yucatan. The Yucatan is a peninsula peopled by the Maya and was organized into a number of city-states. As fate would have it, the Spaniards were able to make contact with a group of Maya who produced for them Geronimo de Aguilar. Aguilar was a Franciscan friar who had been shipwrecked and enslaved by the Maya for about eight years. Eight years? How, how did he survive for that long? Well, he had to learn the Maya language. Well, yeah, I mean, but, but how, how, how was he treated? Uh, did he get any kind of special treatment? Does, does Bernal Diaz write anything specific about him? The Spaniards were able to learn from some Maya on the coast that there were some men like them in the interior, and this man was presented to them. He was deeply tanned, and his hair was cut like a slave's, and his only possession was a tattered and folded prayer book. And the Spanish with Cortez, they weren't even able to tell if this guy was European or not at first. So Aguilar, he tries to prove who he is by telling them the date correctly, because he's been counting the days of the week for the past eight years. <laughs> this is gnarly. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I mean, how... How many weeks are there in eight years? And, and he's been holding on to a, a world he's so removed from his life. Now as a slave, uh, after eight years as a Mayan slave, how, how distant his life in Spain must have seemed. It, it's, it's like another life. Did, did I actually come from this? And, and you, you said there were other Spanish guys. Uh, didn't, didn't they show up? Well, when Aguilar found out about the possibility of rescue, he immediately set out for the other survivor of the shipwreck from eight years ago. He went to this fellow, Gonzalo Guerrero, and he told him, pack your things. But Guerrero wouldn't go. Unlike Aguilar, Guerrero had assimilated to Maya life and had laid down roots. Brother Aguilar, I am married and have three children, and they look upon me as a lord here and captain in time of war. My face is tattooed, my ears are pierced. What would the Spaniards say about me if they saw me like this? Go, and God's blessing be with you, for you have seen how handsome these children are of mine. Please give me some of those beads you have brought to give to them, and I will tell them that my brothers have sent them from my own country. Gonzalo Guerrero. Wow, the, the, the contrast between these two characters is so interesting. Aguilar is so insistent to, to return back to the, the Spanish way of life to, and, and, and to bring Guerrero along with him, you know, and he, he was probably driving Guerrero nuts for all these, these years, just like, you know, he's that friend who's always like, 
Hey, remember? Re remember that time? Re remember that in Spain and the, the Catholic Church and, and and remember we were we were doing all that and 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 <clears throat> oh, Aguilar, dude, I'm gonna be straight with you here. I have I've moved on. I've I've got face tattoos. I worship the sun god. I worship the corn god. Please, address me as my name, Maze. My name is Maze. After rescuing Aguilar and defiling a Maya holy site, the expedition sailed up and around the Yucatan Peninsula and landed on its western coast. The Spanish encountered and defeated the army of the Maya Kingdom of Tabasco. The defeated lords of the city provided the conquistadors with tribute in the form of gold objects and 20 female slaves. Is this like spoils of war kind of thing or more like a bribe to leave? Both. The Maya rulers of the city could not have been oblivious to the fact this was a group of 500 men and only a handful of women. Bernal Diaz described one of the women forced to go with the conquistadors as being the mistress of vassals. So take from that what you will. These women were gifted to violent foreigners, so we can conclude that at some level they were considered expendable by the leaders of Tabasco. Ah, oh, that's, that's scary. It's evil. Cortez, in a bizarre mix of paternalism and inhumanity, ordered the women baptized to preserve their souls before he divided them amongst his captains to be kept as sex slaves. Oh, that's worse. He divided the women by beauty and assigned the most attractive to the men with the noblest birth. Oh, and I didn't, I didn't expect it to get even more twisted. I, I, what, what a terrible compartmentalization of, of human suffering. The band of marauding warriors and slaves beached a few miles away from the Totonac city of Papantla. At this site, Cortez founded the settlement which would grow into modern-day Veracruz. They were met at Veracruz by an emissary from the wealthy Valley of Mexico. But there's a problem. Far Aguilar, the translator Cortez relied upon, spoke a dialect of Maya which had helped them so far, but the emissary's party were the Nahua-speaking peoples. Ah, oh, who, who are the Nahuas? The Nahua people are what folks today know as the Aztecs and their relations. The Aztecs didn't actually even call themselves Aztecs. Their religion forbade them from calling themselves that. In the Nahua understanding, the Aztecs were the ancient proto-people from which the Nahua descended. The dominant group of the Nahua-speaking peoples called themselves the Meica, from which we get the term Mexico. So Cortez and his army, the, the friar and their enslaved women, they're all lost in translation. Yeah, and it leads to this historic scene where the conquistadors and the Nahua speakers are frustratedly attempting to communicate when one of the enslaved Maya women steps forward and addresses the Nahua speakers in their own language. She gestured to Cortez, indicating that he was a person of importance. Wow, and, and who's she? Her name is Malinali. She's in her late teens or early 20s. Her friends called her Tenepal, which can mean something like lively talker. After her brief indoctrination and baptism, Malinali had been given the name Marina, which she used for the rest of her life. Marina understood the Nahua dialect being spoken, and could communicate in Maya to Geronimo de Aguilar. Both the Spanish and Mexica were patriarchal and slave-owning societies, in which female servants did not speak out. Marina defied cultural norms, and asserted her own intelligence and political skill by communicating directly to the Mexicans, circumnavigating the importance of Aguilar and representing the entire Spanish party. Yeah, and, and what does Cortez think of this? Well, it's about this time that Cortez and Marina became inseparable. 
Nahua speakers use a single word, malinsin, when referring to both of them. So they were like an item. You know, I, I wasn't there and can't say. Referring to both of them, either of them, with a single word, I think speaks for itself, though. Mexica saw Cortez and Marina as a single unit. But by today's standards, Cortez was a racist and misogynist. And in all his writings, Cortez only referred to Marina twice, as his translator and as an Indian woman. That's pretty cold. But Cortez was also married to Catarina Juarez at this time, so your sex slave is maybe not something you mention in official documents. Cortez eventually had a child with Marina, and he named the boy after his father, Martin. But he also married Marina off to a subordinate. Cortez also probably gave her syphilis. Oh, what else is, is mentioned about this poor woman? She's had such a heavy role in the story, and, you know, she's she's helping them out, and, and, and she, she kind of, you know, saves the day. She saves the day. And then, you know, she gets a sex virus. I'm not going to say that Marina is in a good position here, but by aligning herself with Cortez and Conquistadors, she now has more authority and importance than she ever had as a slave of the Lord's Tabasco. Bernal Diaz has nothing but good things to say about her. Doña Marina was a person of the greatest importance and was obeyed without question by the Indians throughout New Spain. I have made a point of explaining this matter because without the help of Doña Marina, we could have not understood the language of New Spain and Mexico. Cortez didn't respect her in his writings. Diaz and the men on the ground, they did have a working respect for her. They understood that their survival depended on this woman. Diaz even referred to Marina with the honorific title Doña. That's really forward of him to, to write like that. You know, to, to recognize this role that, that this woman has, has played in this story. And, and, and from the emissary through Marina, Cortez has finally learned of Mexico. Cortez knows that his expedition didn't get off to the best start as far as, you know, the law is concerned. But he now knows of the wealthy city to the northwest. And he has the hope that through bribery and flattery that his actions thus far can be legitimized. In July 1519, Cortez wrote his first letter to Carlos V, King of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor, and in it attempted to justify his actions. He signed it and made all the officers below him sign it as well. Ah, a little insurance policy. The letter was then sent with a boatload of treasure to be delivered to the king by Alonso Fernandez Puerto Carrero, the highest ranking nobleman in the party, and the man Cortez had originally assigned Marina to. After Puerto Carrero set sail, Cortez ordered his remaining ships to be scuttled in the bay. Is Cortez self-destructing or a metamorphosis? What's going on here? Cortez has high hopes about his letter, I'm sure, but to the Holy Roman Emperor, Cortez doesn't amount to a hill of beans. He's a small-time colonial administrator. He's no standing in Spain. So Cortez is just hoping that by sending off this treasure boat, this giant bribe, it'll be an acceptable way of saying, so sorry. Now the would-be conquerors with Cortez understand the potential consequences if they fail. They have no means to retreat and no guarantee of rescue. The conquistadors, the sailors, the entire Spanish party is now hyper-dependent on Cortez for leadership. It's a very power-hungry and paranoid move on the part of Cortez. Great insight into his psyche. Well, how's that? Well, Cortez sends away his highest-born nobleman, the only one who could, you know, officially challenge his authority. This also frees up Dona Marina for himself. 
He's also getting rid of all the treasure, which would only be dead weight to carry at this point, as well as avoid any temptation for his men to just run off with this, you know, this booty that they've collected, mutiny. Now, while we're talking about the conquistadors, I want to give a brief history shout-out to a man named Juan Garrido. Ah, what's, what's special about this guy? He's a conquistador of African descent. He came to Portugal as a young man, converted to Christianity, and took the name Juan Garrido for himself. Garrido can mean something like elegant or handsome. He lived most of his life within the greater Spanish world. He came to the Caribbean in 1502 and joined with Cortez's expedition when he was in his 40s. He was one of the more seasoned senior men amongst the conquistadors. In some indigenous-made illustrations of the conquest, Garrido can be seen at the head of the party, near Cortez and Doña Marina. Lastly, Juan Garrido was probably the first individual to grow wheat for commercial purposes in North America. Wow, that's that's really cool, and it's actually pretty amazing because this is this guy's life, a, a story that I've never really heard before, and it's you know it's just one small slice of the the larger loaf narrative of, of California. Yeah, and, uh, you know, apologies for the diversion. We do need to jump and skip a lot of important stories to get to California, but I thought. Juan Garrido's story is worth sharing. It is. It's very important. It's It's been interesting mix of individuals on this this crew. You know, Bernal Diaz, uh, Guerrero. I, I don't know why there isn't, you know, Cortez the movie starring Vin Diesel, The Rock. Who's going to play Marina? There have been movies, mostly in Spanish. Uh, you know, what, what about the Rotel Dorado? Eh, psh, it's no Hollywood big show blockbuster, man. It's, whatever. So uh, they're basically marooned, right? Cort Cortez, Hanson Juan, Marina, the crew, uh, they're in a land completely foreign to them. They're on the precipice of exploration, and the only things they have is the gear they could carry on all the slaves' backs. Soon after the party advanced into the interior, Doña Marina was able to secure an alliance between the Conquistador army and the Nahua city-state of Tlaxcala. The Tlaxcalans were a subject people of the Nahua of the Valley of Mexico and very dissatisfied with the arrangement. Zicotenga, the captain general of the Tlaxcala, agreed to make common cause with the Spanish. About 1,000 Tlaxcalan warriors and their captains joined with Cortez. The combined force marched to the city of Cholula, home to the traditional enemies of the Tlaxcala. They burned the city and executed 3,000 people in under three hours. Cortez just tripled the size of his forces. He's won this battle and, and, and reinforced his army and, and of course, devastated Cholula, uh, he must have been feeling pretty confident. Cortez's entourage is now an immense crowd of people. Over 500 Spanish, a thousand Tlaxcalans, and hundreds of allies, camp followers, servants, and slaves. On November 8, 1519, the conquistadors finally reached the Valley of Mexico and peacefully crossed the great causeway spanning Lake Texcoco. They were welcomed to the island city of Tenochtitlan, home to upwards of 200,000 people. Madrid, the largest city in Spain, only had a population of 40,000. We've heard of Bernal Diaz speak about how the city was so magnificent, so beyond anything he had previously experienced, that he could only think to compare it to the fantasy world of Las Sergas de Estandien. It was the most amazing city any of the conquistadors had ever seen in their whole lives. The first meeting of Cortez and Moctezuma II, the Tlatoani, the leader of the city, was awkward. Cortez attempted to hug 
the great man. Ooh, faux pas. It's just not a classy thing to do. Uh, through emissaries, Moctezuma had sent jade and gold masks as gift to Cortez. Fine, fine objects of art. Cortez and the Spaniards could only scrape together a gift of cheap beads, a used helmet, and a footstool. <laughs> footstool? I mean, I'm, I am very interested in who carried the footstool the whole time. I, I, I mean, I would be soaked on a gift from travelers from across the ocean, wouldn't, wouldn't you? Unfortunately, the Mexica were not impressed. Again, thanks to the diplomatic skills of Doña Marina, conflict was averted, and the foreigners were invited to camp within the compound of Moctezuma, inside the city, where the Spanish would then spend the winter. Bernal Diaz provides us with this sketch of the Lord of Tenochtitlan. The great Moctezuma was about 40 years old, of good height, well-proportioned, spare and slight. He had a short black beard, well-shaped and thin. His face was rather long and cheerful. He had fine eyes, and in his appearance and manner could express geniality, or, when necessary, a serious composure. Bernal Diaz is much more interested in, I think, writing a story than just documenting the facts. This and that, that other story about Guerrero, you know, the contrast between him and Aguilar, these are interesting, colorful details that really enrich the history. Many of the accounts of the Spanish conquest were written decades after the fact and were written with very specific agendas, you know, to, to get this or that guy a pension, to justify permission to expand into such and such region, to ask for favors. Conquest narratives had a political agenda. Bernal Diaz del Castillo's angle was to report on things that he saw, and I think it lends his narrative a very personable quality. But, but wait, uh, aren't, aren't the Spanish and, and the Mexicas, the, they're like living in the, the capital together. Uh, is, isn't there a conquest going on? Aren't they enemies? No, the first week goes by okay. Cortez has some meetings via Doña Marina with Moctezuma. Moctezuma very politely, he gives every one of the Spanish adventurers a a gold trinket when they visit, like a, like a party favor. Uh, Cortez does uh, embarrass himself a bit in the sacred temple, but at least there's no violence. However, by the end of the first week, the Spanish have made the decision to keep Moctezuma hostage in his own home. How? Now, Bernal Diaz writes about the unfolding of these events like it's like an inevitable chain. But I think that, you know, he's, a, he's dissembling here. He tells us that the Spanish were looking to build a chapel for themselves within Moctezuma's compound, and that coincidentally, ironically, they had also heard about a, a rumor of a sealed chamber in the palace which contained the treasury of Moctezuma I. And so while building their chapel, they happened across a doorway that had been plastered over, and building their chapel around this doorway, they were able to break in and find a store of gold and jewels. Oh, what luck. At this point, the Spanish were just doing mental gymnastics to come up with ways about how they could make this gold theirs as soon as possible. Oh, the greed. And Bernal Diaz was not immune to it. He and the other officers of the party had a meeting after the discovery, and they decided that you know they could no longer trust Moctezuma, that they must hold the ruler hostage in order to guarantee their own safety. The following quote is Bernal Diaz speaking as the group of captains to Cortez. But Cortez was also one of the guys who broke into the vault, probably didn't need any convincing to plunder it. So it reads to me 
A bit like Diaz is trying to convince us, his readers, that he was doing the only logical thing. Cortez ought to remember the inconstancy of the human mind in general, and of the Indians in particular, and not to trust in the kindness and friendship which Moctezuma showed us. All this might change in an instant, and if Moctezuma did not exactly fall upon us with sword in hand, he had merely to cut off our supply of provisions and water, or break down some of the bridges and we should be lost. Cortez ought to consider what a large body of warriors always surrounded the monarch, and how powerless we should be and ill-able to defend ourselves, since all of the houses stood in the water. We could not count upon the assistance of our friends the Tlaxcalans, as they would be totally cut off from us. Now for three months there's a general peace between the Spanish, the Tlaxcalan allies, and the Mexica. 98 days. It is a bizarre standoff in which Moctezuma is hostage to the Spanish, but the Spanish are also completely surrounded by the Mexica. Moctezuma continued to rule and attend his vast court, but the Spanish threatened to take his life if he ever tries to leave. Adding to all this, I can't imagine that the citizens of Tenochtitlan appreciated seeing their leader associating so closely with foreign barbarians. Moctezuma's still in charge, but he's like, got a secret sword to his back the whole time. So Cortez and his men, they're like squatting the king's palace, uh, the, the guests that just would never leave. How did they interact on a daily schedule thing, you know, like eating, going to the bathroom, being a hostage? I'm sure it was tense, but groups on both sides settled into something of a routine. Cortez and Moctezuma and their followers played dice games with each other while the enmity and frustration of the Mexica people festered. So Zach, do you remember the bribe ship that Cortez sent to King Carlos? Yeah, did it ever make it? It stopped in Cuba along its way. Now, the idea that his mutinous subordinate was about to send a boatload of treasure to the king was just too much for Governor Velasquez. He decided that you know, enough is enough, Cortez has to be stopped. Now, failing to halt Cortez in the first place is bad enough, but this treasure ship being sent by the underling would totally undermine Velasquez's authority. Yeah, Velasquez is looking pretty bad at this point. He, he could have been, you know, part of this conquest and if he hadn't, you know, revoked the charter in the first place. Velasquez sent a small army, led by Panfilo de Narvez, to find and capture Cortez. Narvez has with him about a thousand men. Wow, just round up the posse. So Cortez makes a decision to divide his troops, leaving most of his men at Tenochtitlan. He takes a detachment of Spanish and the Tlaxcalan force to meet Narvez on the coast. Not only did Cortez surprise and defeat Narvez, he actually convinced the survivors of the Narvez expedition to join him. Why not? I mean, they're there. It's like, what are they going to do now? Uh, your, your soldier sent to basically arrest Cortez, the guy who just, you know, not only sent a whole ship full of gold to the king, but he's also like, uh, not only will I spare you, you can join me in taking over this exotic golden empire. I mean, why not join the gang? Probably also didn't have much of a choice. Narvez, who lost an eye in the fighting, was taken prisoner. Cortez, with fresh reinforcements, returned to Tenochtitlan to find the city in a total state of unrest. In his absence, Cortez had left a man named Pedro de Alvarado in charge. Alvarado had allowed for several hundred Mexican nobles to celebrate a festival of the god Huitzilopochtli. It took place in an enclosed area and it would have been packed with musicians and dancers and other celebrants. Those assembled would have been wearing their finest garments, 
decked out with precious jewels, featherwork, and gold jewelry. At the height of these ceremonies, Alvarado ordered his men to block the exits and execute every Mexica present. At the time when everyone was already enjoying the celebration, when everyone was already dancing, when everyone was already singing, when song was linked to song and the songs were like waves in that precise moment, the Spaniards determined to kill people. They came into the patio armed for battle. They came to, cl they came to close the exits, the steps, the entrances, and when they had closed them, no one could get out anywhere. Once they, once they had done this, they entered the sacred patio to kill people. They surrounded those who danced, then rushed to the place where the drums were played. They attacked the man who was drumming and they cut off both his arms. Then they cut off his head with such a force that it flew off, falling far away. Relation of the origin of the Indians who inhabit this new Spain, according to the histories, author unknown, late 16th century. This is horrific. Uh, these, these people were butchered. For what? Hundreds dead, including members of important families. Moctezuma, still held by the Spanish at his palace, was spared. But the massacre at the temple ended the last vestiges of peace between the Spanish and Mexica. Why did Alvarado do this? There are two possibilities. Alvarado was either acting on information that the Mexica were planning to attack while Cortez was away, and in that case, acted precipitously to execute the conspirators. You know, or Alvarado was simply acting impulsively and executed the revelers in order to strip their bodies of valuables. What the hell is wrong with these people? Mexica warriors eventually organized themselves while the Spanish retreated to Moctezuma's palace. Huge crowds gathered around the compound to demand the expulsion of the foreigners. Moctezuma was forced out onto a balcony by the Spanish to calm his people, but by this time they had no more tolerance for the captive king, and the furious crowd pelted Moctezuma with stones. Whoa, to vent this kind of aggression towards the monarch, someone who is, you know, celebrated as a god, worshipped as divine, it demonstrates just how over it the Mahika people were. While we don't know for sure if it was these wounds which killed Moctezuma, we do know that a few hours later, the lifeless body of the Lord of Tenochtitlan was unceremoniously tossed over the palace walls and into the dusty streets below. Wow, the, the people really revolted. A, a, a great example of a violent but perhaps necessary revolution. They watched their leader play house with these foreign barbarians who bring, like, only a huge army and a footstool for trading. They wouldn't stand for this. So what happens to, to the government of this place? I mean, By the time Cortes returned to Tenochtitlan, the Mexica had already chosen a new leader, Cuitlahuac, who was making preparations to invade the island city and drive out the foreign invaders. Surrounded and fearing for their lives, Cortes and his allies decided to abandon Tenochtitlan. They attempted to escape late at night on June 30th, 1520, under the cover of a summer rain, maybe hoping that the sound of the rain would cover their escape. But they're a group of several hundred with gear who need to wind their way through narrow alleys before crossing the long causeway. Unfortunately for the Spanish, their escape didn't work out like they would have hoped. It doesn't seem stealthy at all, really. They are first spotted by a woman who is out fetching water, and again by a priest atop the city's central pyramid temple. Both of these individuals cry out and begin to rouse the city. Very cowardly escapes, especially after, you know, brutally slaying all these people at their religious event, of course, invading their country. 
They presume to act like powerful leaders, but now the, the fight has come to them and the Spanish choose to just sneak out at night. It is an amazing episode. The retreating Spanish are absolutely overwhelmed by the people of the city who attacked them mercilessly. The Spanish called it La Noche Triste, the sad night. The figures vary, but over 800 Spanish are killed. 200 die on the causeway leading out of the city alone. Over a thousand Tlaxcalan and other allies are killed. Cortez survived, but was wounded. The sons of Moctezuma, hostages of the Spanish, were killed. All of the artillery was lost. Most of the horses were slain. Victory for the Mahica and the surviving Spanish? The survivors of La Noche Triste flee for two weeks before rebuffing their Mexica pursuers at the Battle of Otumba. The victors of that battle make it back to Tlaxcala, the city-state that now maybe wonders if it made the right decision in allying with the foreigners. Back in Tenochtitlan, one of the great calamities of the meeting of the old and new worlds began to unfold. Smallpox, brought by one of the Narvaez expedition, spread in the city and became an epidemic. Even the new Tlatoani, Cuitlahuac, so many were dying that famine occurred because there were not enough living to gather food. There weren't enough living to dispose of the dead and corpses were left in the city streets. Around half the population of Tenochtitlan, some 100,000 people, would have died from disease or famine within six months. What's Cortez, Marina, Diaz, and the rest of them, what, what are they doing at this time? Cortez cajoled and bullied his surviving men into continuing on. Other than admit defeat, this was Cortez's only option. Word of the plague and vulnerability of the Mexica capital spread across the region. Cortez and Doña Marina were able to win even more allies among city-states which had chafed under Mexica rule. The final march on Tenochtitlan began in May 1521, nearly half a year since Moctezuma first welcomed Cortez into his city. Entire ships were built on the Atlantic coast, carried over 200 miles inland by slaves, and then reassembled on the shores of Lake Texcoco. After many battles on land, on the lake, and nearly three months of desperate siege warfare, the greatest city in North America surrendered. During the 93 days we lay before this great and strong city, we were compelled to fight both day and night, almost without intermission. If I were desirous of relating every circumstance, I should never finish, and my book would resemble Amadis de Gaul and other such romances, whose authors can find no end to their pretty stories. Wow, uh, this, this has been really epic. But we're not talking about California, Dylan. I, I know this is the prehistory, but what about California? No, you're, you're absolutely right. I haven't talked about California. But we do need to tell this story because it's important in understanding the history of the Americas. Cortez sets precedent for everything that follows. And for centuries, California was claimed by Spain and administered for Mexico City. And the reason why you and I are living in California today, this, the culture that we live and breathe, has something to do with this initial invasion. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Thanks, Cortez. Same year that Tenochtitlan fell to the Spanish, 1521, another Spanish explorer made a discovery that would reverberate throughout history. Ferdinand Magellan reached Southeast Asia by sailing west from Spain. 
This was, of course, the original aim of Columbus's 1492 voyage. Ah, the Moluccas, the Spice Islands, Southeast Asia. I mean, it's the whole point of Spain sending ships to the west, right? To, to get to the East Indies. They, they needed the spice. The spice must flow. Magellan's expedition is big news in Europe, and overshadowed the news coming in about the Americas. I don't think that the folks back in Europe really appreciated just how the world had changed. But how could they? It happened on the other side of the globe, in a kingdom they couldn't even begin to conceptualize. After the destruction of the indigenous Mexica government, Cortes began to take charge of affairs, but he's also fighting to maintain his position and authority among an ever-growing number of conquistadors and administrators arriving in what has been renamed New Spain. In order to boost his own prestige and to get on the spice trade, Cortes has to keep exploring west into the Pacific Ocean. So this is where Cortes and the Spanish finally get to California. It's the first step. Cortes was ready to go explore the Southern Seas. The Southern Seas, by the way, is the common name for the Pacific Ocean at the time. Magellan had named the ocean the Pacific in 1519, but it took a few decades to catch on. So by the end of the decade of the 1530s, several events came to a head which would frustrate Cortez's ambitions. Like what? Number one, Catholic missionaries of the Franciscan order began to arrive in New Spain. Cortez had written to the king and asked for a single Franciscan and Dominican representative each, but a much larger number of both eventually came. Why did Cortez ask for representatives from these specific orders? I'm, I'm not very familiar. H how would these missionaries become a complication? The Dominicans and Franciscans are both monastic orders dedicated to poverty and service. Their presence and implied consent would be a tacit legitimization of Cortez's policies. But Cortez can't control the flow of these missionaries. He doesn't have that kind of power. More missionaries begins to upset the precarious balance of power already established by the conquistadors. How's that? While the conquistadors are seeking to enrich themselves with slaves and stolen land, the missionaries, on the other hand, have been charged with winning hearts and minds. Missionaries like Bartolomé de las Casas agitated for the rights of indigenous Americans in Spain. By providing protection, as well as holding supernatural authority, the Franciscans and Dominicans were able to leverage influence over the indigenous population. So the Spanish, accidentally or otherwise, end up importing the same kind of parallel authority systems that they had in Europe, uh, where the church and the state are performing overlapping functions, and by doing this, they come into conflict with each other. Uh, the, these frictions bet between these two spheres of influence, frustrating. Number two problem for Cortes is the appearance of Nuno Beltran de Guzman. If Cortes ever had an arch nemesis, it was this man. Whoa, Guzman, who's he? Well, he starts his career as a member of King Carlos's bodyguard. Okay, a, a guy close to the king, maybe like a King Carlos's yes-man? King Carlos had trusted Guzman to perform sensitive tasks for him before. Guzman was to be the eyes and ears of the king in New Spain, and would eventually serve as the president of the royal audience in New Spain. Guzman's other job would be check the ambitions and political power of Cortes whenever possible. Ah, Cortes has, has no direct connection to the king himself, so, so where does his, his power and authority come from? By the time Guzman arrived, Cortes had already been in the New World for over a decade. He was an institution. The total success of the conquest of Mexico is attributed to him. 
when public facilities and churches need to be built or rebuilt in Mexico City, it wasn't the king who was footing the bill, it was Cortez. So, one of Guzman's early jobs in establishing the king's authority was to place an image of the king's royal coat of arms on all the major buildings to remind the inhabitants that it was the king and not Cortez who was really in control. That sounds like quite a task for one guy. You know, either the power of this appointment went to his head, or Guzman was just always an awful man. Guzman quickly earned a reputation for cruelty beyond that of any other conquistador. Entire towns were butchered and burned. The survivors rounded up, branded with hot iron on their faces, and sold. Guzman actually introduced a new form of slavery to northern Mexico, in which, and unlike in Mesoamerican slavery, human beings could be exported across the ocean and traded for cattle. When letters were sent to the king decrying Guzman's behavior, Guzman banned communication with the royal court. Well, I thought Cortez was dastardly and, and the worst. Ugh. Even though Guzman had no prior military experience, I think he developed a reputation for ruthlessness and cruelty that would impress any opposition, including Cortez. As a conquistador, Guzman also founded a number of cities, as well as the Kingdom of Nueva Galicia. That, plus the support of the crown, made for a very imposing enemy. The third strike against Cortez were the mysterious deaths surrounding his person. Assassinations? Conspiracy? Two men, Cortez's replacement as governor of New Spain, and the government official appointed to monitor Cortez, both died shortly after their arrival on the coast in 1527. People started talking about poison. It couldn't have helped that Cortez's first wife had also died under questionable circumstances. Questionable circumstances? Cortez says that, you know, one night his wife fainted and that he lightly shook her by the neck to wake her. But, you know, she just wouldn't wake up. That, that sounds like he strangled her to death. What, what kind of person just shakes someone from the neck? Lastly, Cortez lost his cousin. Lost? Like, like he lost his wife and, and those officials? In 1527, Cortez sent his cousin, Alvaro de Saavedra Serrón, on a dangerous mission to chart a route to the Spice Islands from New Spain. Two months into the voyage, two of the three ships were lost and never seen again. Saavedra's vessel would eventually reach Southeast Asia and have many adventures there, but it would be seven long years until his men would return to the Americas without Serrón. In that time, Cortez would have had no contact with his cousin and considered him and his substantial investment lost. As much as this is a financial loss to Cortez, it is a great historical first. Uh, the first trans-Pacific voyage from North America to Asia. I'm getting an idea of Cortez's career at this point, you know. He's competing for power with Guzman to his left and, and the church to his right. He's, he's in bad financial straits and he's probably killed his wife. He's an awful man. Now this all catches up with Cortez, and he becomes obliged to return to Spain to defend his character. No, no kidding. So he was received by the emperor, received a verbal warning, but that's all. He also received a coat of arms for his trouble. <laughs> he gets rewarded? Oh, uh, he doesn't get chastised for this? I mean, I, I was sworn that that the. the Holy Roman Empire would, would torture him for, for being defiant. I mean, I mean, the king just just let him go back to, to New Spain? 
No, it's hard to really punish someone who's added so much territory to the realm. Cortez does go back to New Spain, but he's not the king's choice to, for governor or viceroy. He gets the rather nice title of Marquis of the Valley of Oaxaca, uh, but no huge promotion. In all his letters thereafter, Cortez signed for himself as the Marquis. Wow, that's, that's a definite compromise, uh, but it's obvious that he can't be the head honcho in Mexico anymore. It, it, it seems like... Uh, at, at this time, with the arrival of the missionaries and the, the officials like Guzman breathing down his neck, the Spanish are, are beginning to seriously invest into the new colonies. If Cortes wants to continue his growth, power, influence, he has to keep exploring and keep conquering new territory. Now, there are expeditions planned by the Viceroy for other parts of the American interior, so Cortes sets his gaze instead on the Southern Sea. Because Hernan Cortez has heard fantastic rumors from the people on the coast about an island far to the west. An island inhabited only by women without any men. And at that, at given times, men from the mainland visit them. If they conceive, they keep the female children to which they give birth. But the males, they throw away. This island is ten days' journey from the province. Many of them went thither and saw it, and told me also that it's very rich in pearls and gold. I shall strive to ascertain the truth, and when I am able to do so, I shall make a full account to your majesty. Hernan Cortes, fourth letter to Carlos V, October 20th, 1524. That sounds like California! Hi, this is Dylan. Thank you for listening to Decline of the Western Civilizations. I have one small correction to make. At one point I said, by the end of the 1530s. That should have been by the end of the 1520s. Thanks for understanding. If you like this podcast, please check us out on iTunes or Google Play. Give us review or rate us. Also check out declineofthewesterncivilizations.com.